This is an ABC podcast. Today, the case of the Brisbane teacher who was injured while on a school trip to Vanuatu. A decision was made to take the the children to the Blue Lagoon where there was a platform with a rope with a knot on it and you can swing out on the rope and jump into the lagoon. So this was a great thing for young ones to do. But not such a great thing for the teacher, Geraldine Glass. Now, before we travel to Vanuatu, the case of the Gold Coast sales assistant injured in a jewellery store robbery. I didn't take it to court for money. I did it to let people know they can't keep doing this to people, Okay. Nicole Funnell, who was awarded $270,000 by the Queensland District Court. Hi, Damien Carrick with you. Welcome to The Law Report. We'll be looking at two recent Queensland court decisions involving work-related injuries. First, to the Gold Coast. In November 2016, Nicole was working behind the counter at a Michael Hill jewellery store at a Westfield shopping centre in Helens Vale. A customer walked in, and it was a male, and he said to me, what's the price of that necklace? And we had a special on. And I said, oh, it's normally 13000 He goes, well, what's the best price? I took it out of the glass case, went up to price it, which all of us do it, because you don't know what the minimum sell is and what the value is on that day. So what, you kind of scan the, the item yeah. on the register? So I scanned or, it on yeah. the register, which I had to walk over to scan it. And I came back and I said, it's 7500 And he said, oh, can I feel the weight of this? And I went, well, actually, have you got your driver's licence? See, normally you had to, uh, it was 20000 and over, you had to ask for a licence. But because this particular necklace, people wanted to steal it all the time, it was my thought to say, well, I'll have you, could I see your licence, please? And then he's leant over, he's put his fist that hard on the glass. I thought that noise, I'll never forget that as long as I live. Then he's grabbed with his hands and he's trying to pull me. So it was like a tug of war. And where the bench is, it's right underneath your under your bus line near your ribs. And I could feel him hitting against my ribs. It seemed like minutes, but it was apparently seconds. And then what he did, he went to grab it again. I could feel my hands burning because he was trying to rip it out of my hands. Because the first time he hit it, pulled it with one hand, like tug of war. Then the second time, he just went bang with his two hands and the clasp actually broke and he ran off. You were physically injured in the sense that your hands, there was blood on your hands and there was kind of bruising on your ribs. He ran out of the store without the necklace. Was he subsequently apprehended? No. So he ran out of the store into the shopping mall, but then out of the shopping mall. um, Into the car park, because where we're situated, we've got the big door, all our doors are open, there's one big sliding door, and you run out and you're into a car park. Because we're on a corner. So imagine there's a shop opposite us, then you've got a sliding, like a, you know, an entrance to the mall, and then we're on the other side. So, But we don't have any doors, like it's all wide open in that day, so it's a whole side panel, everything's open. So he had just had to walk out, turn right, and he was out through the doors and out to the car park. How long had you been working at the store before this incident? Uh, 2013. So about two years. Yeah. And did you keep working at the store after this event? No, I didn't. Why not? How did it impact you? I was, uh, how can I put it? I've never been physically touched by a man, like abused by a man. I got robbed a year before that. The man ran off with a jewellery. We saved it, but he didn't didn't touch me, didn't hurt me. So I felt violated by this person I don't even know. The police came, but they didn't even close the shop that day. Michael Hill still stayed open. And then forensics come, but everyone was touching all the 
everywhere, so that didn't happen. And they had to take photos and whatever. And then I went home. I went. I was a mess. I just lost it. And um, I've never been the same since. And were you able to return to work the following day or the following weeks? No, no. I went to the doctors. My partner at the time was saying I was screaming in my sleep, crying. Things just seemed to get worse and worse. And I went to the doctor and I told him what had happened and... Um, I went downhill. I lost all my confidence. Can I explain it? <laughs> See, I get nervous even talking about it now. I get all up, worked up. Um, I can't stand loud noises. If I hear noises, I jump and I, I'm hypervigilant. I'm always looking who's over my shoulder. It really impacted on your, on your well-being, this incident. Oh, yeah. So you never went back to work at the Helens Vale store? And no, I've never walked in the centre. Can I ask, before the crime uh, at the jewellery store. I mean, how was your mental health? Oh, I was happy-go-lucky, fine, bubbly, talked to everyone. Everyone said I had my own way of selling. I actually thought I was going to retire at Michael Hill. I loved that job so much. The pleasure of seeing people getting an engagement ring, the happiness of it all. Then they come and they've had their first baby. They come back every year with, oh, you know, it's our first anniversary, buy an eternity ring. It was a pleasurable job. I loved it. And I'll be still there today if this didn't happen. Nicole, coming back to the protocols around handling the jewellery, removing and replacing items from the glass cabinets and getting ID from people before they handle the expensive merchandise, you followed all the protocols, didn't you, about those sorts of things? Well, we have a book and it's um, like you've, seven steps to successful selling and things. And you've got to go like welcoming the person and find out what they're after, the benefits, this, that, whatever. There is times when people just want to come in and go, hey, what's that? You know, they can just come and say, how much is that? Okay, I'll buy it. Every person, every scenario is different. In the manual, it didn't say anything about armed robberies. Like that was, you don't think of that at the time, you know. I did do the right thing and I actually, I didn't have to ask for the licence, but I did. As a result of the robbery, Nicole was traumatised and has not been able to return to work in retail. Nicole's lawyer is Peter Gibson from Shine Lawyers. He says the employer was found liable for Nicole's injuries because it didn't have good processes in place to minimise the risk of robberies. It was simply this issue around process. The court said these snatch and grabs or thefts are something that Michael Hill would definitely know could occur and that they needed to take reasonable steps, reasonable precautions to avoid any injury to its employees. The court said the simplest thing that could have been done by Michael Hill was to have a safety policy rather than just a sales process. And the safety policy was to say that before any item valued more than $2,000 is um, taken out of a cabinet, an ID must be cited of the person wanting to make that purchase or, or inspection of the item. And what actually happened in this event actually supports the court's findings because as soon as the ID was asked for, that's when the incident occurred, that's when the snatch occurred because they don't want to be identified. And if the item's still locked up, then there's nothing that person can really do to try and grab that item for that in a nutshell. This is a simple precaution the court said should have been taken and that would have prevented these injuries from occurring. Nicole, why are you speaking to me? Why do you think it's important to share your story? Well, how it impacted and affected my life. I'm not the same person I used to be. I'm nervous even now talking, doing this, to rehash it all again. The thing is, if I can just help one person, if they can hear this and understand the impact it can have, if I've just saved one person, I'm happy as Larry. 
I understand that the chain of stores have actually changed some of their security measures and their protocols and, and their processes. Yes. Anything over two thousand dollars, they've got to produce their driver's license. Before it was twenty, now it's two. So yes, having what's happened to me, it has changed their way of thinking now. Former Gold Coast jewellery store sales assistant Nicole Funnell. In finding that Michael Hill Jewellers was negligent, the district court judge focused on the inadequacy of the protocols around the removal of valuable jewellery from locked glass cabinets. The judge felt that all the store's other security measures were reasonable and were fit for purpose. There was a lot of discussion around the CCTV footage and whether that was adequately displayed and visible to people that came into the store. Again, as a deterrent, what you want in these sorts of stores is is to let um, would-be offenders know that, hey, if you're going to do something in this store, we're going to get you on camera. And there was no real visible sign sort of warning people that that was in fact the case. So in terms of the other physical barriers, there, there really was none. There was a, There's the counter in the jewellery store that she was behind and could take sort of refuge behind the counter, so to speak, but it wasn't the type of counter that couldn't be jumped over by a would-be offender. So there wasn't security in the store. Um, A designated security guard. No, that's right. There's no designated security guard in the store. Um, The evidence from from Michael Hill Jeweler on that point is that they don't do that as of course. They've got a few stores where they would have a permanent security guard when they have much higher value jewellery on site, which they said their evidence was that the Helensvale store didn't have that such higher value jewellery on site, so therefore it wasn't necessary. This store was in a shopping mall. There was no door from the store into the shopping mall thoroughfare, right? No, that's exactly right. So, you know, it's been set up to invite customers in to, you know, assist with sales. And that's exactly how this store was set up. It wasn't set up as safe as it possibly can be for employees. And that's that's not what the court was saying was needed to be done in this situation. They're saying, well, the, the employer needs to take reasonable steps and you've got to have regard to what's the surroundings. It's in at Westfield. Westfields do provide security. They do have people um, wandering around uh, the centres and whatnot. There are CCTV. Uh, they've got to uh, take reasonable steps like that, but it's not to lock down and provide it like, you know, the, your traditional bank where you've got a big piece of perspex in front of a person to do the negotiation, so to speak. So it's it's just what reasonable steps need to be taken. That's why the court thought um, and found that the policies around this citing of identification was really a simple, cost-efficient, well, really no-cost um, option to the defendant to implement, which would have avoided this incident from occurring. How many similar incidents had there been in Michael Hill jewellery stores? Uh, this this was a, a bit contentious as two in terms of the number of incidents that had occurred at Michael Hill jewellers because they didn't really have a system uh, whereby they recorded all these incidents and recorded the consequence of these incidents. So although there was evidence led that there had been a number um, of incidents both locally and nationally and internationally because they're an international store, nothing was sort of kept and analysed and trends and things used to say, well, could we be doing better to protect our workers um, in that sense? So really the the court was critical of the defendant in that sense too. It thought that 
that information should be kept. And had that information been kept, it would have been much more obvious that their current systems weren't working for them. Indeed, following the incident, the chain of stores did in fact change their practices and procedures, didn't they? Uh, That's exactly right. So they did change their practices to that $2,000 level. You know, if a piece of jewellery is to come out of a locked cabinet that's worth more than $2,000, then you need to check the person's identification. Uh, And that has become part of the policy, which obviously is a, is a good outcome of this case, I think, as much as the defendant will probably say that's not why they implemented the, the policy because of this incident or because of this case. But, you know, I'm sure it was an influencing factor on whether they did implement such a policy. Because that policy has now been implemented, hopefully it'll prevent other people from being injured in similar circumstances. Mm. Peter Gibson, your, your firm also acts for another employee. She was a psychiatric nurse. She won a big... $326,000 in damages at the middle of last year. Tell me about her. Uh, yeah, so this this lady was a psychiatric nurse at a, at a hospital. She was trying to enter through a secured door to get into a, a high-risk sort of psychiatric ward of the hospital. And what happened, unbeknownst to, to this lady, is that there'd been an issue with one of the patients at the hospital in the early hours of the morning um, before she was rostered on to work, and they were concerned about the aggression um, and whether this person would try to abscond. Unbeknownst to her, when she was trying to enter this secure area, this patient tried to push through the door to try and get out uh, and escape. And as a consequence, she suffered both physical and psychiatric injuries as well. So so essentially, uh, when she opened the secure door to go into the secure unit, he then pushed back against the door, try and push his way through, and that caused her to what? I think sort of injuries to both her, her lumbar, to her back, and also psychiatric injuries. Yeah, I think in her evidence, what she she described it as um, she had to use all of her force possible to try and keep that door shut because she didn't want to let that patient escape. And that's what caused her an injury to her lower back, unfortunately, as well as the, the psychiatric injury stemming from the whole ordeal that it was. And I understand that as a result of this incident, she, she stopped being a psychiatric nurse. Yeah, that's that's right. I believe that she uh, retrained to be a psychologist, but she's still not able to work full time. So like with the other client that we were discussing, no longer as productive uh, a person in society, albeit she's retrained herself and got herself back into the workforce to, to some extent. Well, what was the argument that her employer had breached its duty of care towards this woman? Oh, look, again, like in most of these matters that find themselves before a court, there's a number of things argued by the injured um, worker as to what the employer uh, could have done better uh, in order to avoid those injuries. Uh, In this case, there was a a number of arguments put forward to the court um, around the design of the entranceway, around the visibility of the entranceway or inability to see the patients on CCTV. But ultimately, what the court found for this client uh, was that having the employer being on notice of this heightened issue with this particular patient, what would have been a reasonable precaution to take would have been to get one of the security personnel uh, from the hospital to attend uh, with any of the nurses that were trying to enter or exit that secure ward because of this heightened issue that had been um, that had occurred overnight. And the court determined that 
had there been a security officer present at the time, then the incident would have been avoided as either a deterring fact or the, or the security officer could have taken over, so to speak. The hospital employed security guards and they should have been on hand or should have been made available on hand when there are these identifiable risky situations, as was the case um, that, with the injury that, sustained by your client. That's it. The court's not saying that you should have had a security guard at that door all the time. You just, if there's a real heightened risk, that's when you need to take some additional steps to just maintain the safety of everyone, including the patients. Peter Gibson from Shine Lawyers. Michael Hill-Jewellers declined to be interviewed. This is The Law Report on Radio National, on your radio and of course always available as a podcast. I'm Damien Carrick. Now to another legal decision that coincidentally also relates to an awful work-related event back in November 2016. The Industrial Court of Queensland has just handed down a decision that a high school teacher is not entitled to receive workers' compensation. University of Sydney Emeritus Professor Ron McCallum is one of Australia's leading experts in labour or employment law. He says this decision, with the greatest respect doesn't make much sense. Geraldine Glass was a teacher working at Xavier Catholic College in Queensland. She and several other teachers took a group of high school children to Vanuatu on a school trip. And the, this school trip was designed to engage the kids in marine studies and, and cultural exchanges, right. right? Absolutely. And it was also a bit of a fun time for them to go swimming. They did some scuba diving. They looked at a new culture in the Pacific. A lot of fun for kids. Now, on the second day of this trip, a decision was taken to alter the itinerary because I understand the original destination and activity were unsuitable. What decision was made? A decision was made to take the the children to the Blue Lagoon where there was a platform with a rope with a knot on it and you can swing out on the rope and jump into the lagoon. So this was a great thing for young ones to do. So the knotted rope was attached to a tree overhanging the lagoon and the idea was he took hold of the the rope and, yes, swung out into the water, let go and splash into the water. Yeah, and so uh, Miss Glass had a go and she swung out and jumped in but she injured her shoulder and got to the bank and got up but she had to put ice on it and found that she'd suffered an injury. So the question for the Queensland Industrial Court was, is this a work-related injury and should Geraldine Glass be able to claim workers' compensation for this injury, right? That's right. And it relies on the words in most workers' compensation acts, did the injury occur arising out of or in the course of the employment? So the question really was, did this happen in her employment? And the Queensland Industrial Court said no. This didn't happen in her employment. She stepped outside her employment when she swung on the rope because it wasn't planned and it wasn't authorised. Now, if I can add here, Damien, the day before she had gone scuba diving with the children because it was said that they needed teachers in the water to supervise them. So it's a bit sort of strange to me that the day before it's okay and the day in which they go to the Blue Lagoon because 
it was a change in the itinerary, it wasn't okay. Although presumably scuba diving was on the itinerary, everybody expected that that would form part of the activities. Yes, of course, of course. But I think what I'd say is, Damien, um, I've never been a teacher on a school camp, but I think you're really there 24 hours of the day. You know, if a child throws up in the middle of the night, you've got to go and sort them out. And it's very hard for me to say, well, you shouldn't, if they're all jumping off using the rope, that you shouldn't be with them as a young teacher. You're supposed to stand there and say, well, I don't think it's authorised for me to do this. It looks a bit artificial. The, the court said, look, this isn't a workplace injury because Geraldine Glass made a voluntary decision to participate in the rope swing activity. There was no expectation on her to do this as part of her employment. This was recreational, not part of her employment, and it was physically impossible for her to be actively supervising the students while she was swinging off a rope. Does that make sense to you? Well, the purpose of workers' compensation law is to have a no-fault system so that when people suffer injury when they're employed, they recover without having to go through negligence. And it doesn't make sense to me with great respect to the judge and to the Queensland workers' compensation people from whom the judge heard the appeal, she was in her employment, she was on a trip, she was virtually available for 24 hours of the day for those children and jumping into the water seemed to me a perfectly appropriate thing to do while you are are supervising the children. Are they really saying that, that she could supervise from the bank but once she stepped onto the platform and swung on the rope she wasn't supervising. Clearly she was there with the other teachers supervising, watching if one of the children had started throwing things into the lagoon. I'm sure she or one of the other teachers would have jumped up and said, stop that X, Y, Z, whatever. I mean, my my experience of of school trips is that things change and people adapt and you you all go with it. That doesn't mean that uh, all of a sudden you're no longer being employed if if, uh, things change slightly. You're expected to be there. You're expected to engage and interact with the students 24-7. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I just go to the social um, needs of the legislation. It's designed just for these situations. I think she was hard done by. Ron McCallum, We've spoken about similar issues previously. There was the case of uh, PVYW. Can you remind me briefly about her case? That was the case of a woman who was on a trip by her employer to go to various country establishments. In one country town, she was staying the night in a motel and she met one of her friends whom she happened to know. They had dinner, came back to her motel room and had sexual intercourse. While they were having sexual intercourse, a mirror fell from the wall and hit her. She claimed workers' compensation and the High Court said, really, this was outside of her employment. This wasn't something that we would expect people to do. I'm paraphrasing the High Court. This seems a bit strange to me and I don't want to be lewd, but people have sexual intercourse all the time and people go to the gym. If you go to the gym, there's court rulings that say, If you go to the gym in the motel where you're staying and you slip, uh, you can recover. I thought that the um, High Court case, with with great respect, um, I didn't agree with it, and I agreed with the lower 
appellate bodies. So PVYW, ultimately the High Court said, nah, this is not a work-related injury. Even though she was away on a work trip, staying in a motel paid by her work, how does this case here um, with Geraldine Glass, how does that compare to, to PVYW? Well, interestingly, the judge really didn't want to rely upon PVYW. I think the judge may have thought that this has moral issues and he didn't want to get involved in that. So he he just simply said, well, on the facts of this case, I think she stepped outside her employment when she stepped on the platform. Um, He didn't really want to rely on the PVWY case um, because it's it's really a a bit of an aberration in a sense. So I think that uh, she had an argument um, in Miss Glass. Um, She wasn't having sexual intercourse or in a gym away from the students. She was there with the students. She actually had to be at the lagoon if they were going to the lagoon. If she had slipped while walking to the lagoon, she would have recovered. So it seems to me a bit artificial to say, well, when she takes the step of jumping into the the lagoon, and I assume all the other students were jumping into the lagoon under supervision, that she shouldn't recover. So you think it's a bit, it's an arbitrary, it's a a sort of snap second moment in time where she stops being a teacher. um, And and that you think is an artificial distinction? With great respect, I think it's an artificial distinction. And I think that we, we have workers' comp to allow people to recover when they're injured at work. She was clearly at work. And to say that as soon as she stepped on the jumping platform, she'd made a voluntary decision doesn't really make uh, sense to the lay person and, and not to me as an old lawyer. Was it important how the decision was made to go to the Blue Lagoon? I understand that uh, it was done in discussion with the island resort and the idea was that it wasn't a collaborative and professional decision made by the five teachers together uh, and, you know, this wasn't this previously approved um, box oh, oh. and the itinerary. Do all of those things make a difference? Well, you can argue they make a difference. On school trips these days, you've got to make sure you understand the medication of every child, the allergies of every child, and you like to give the parents an itinerary before you take them overseas. Um, But I think you've got to go with the flow a bit in a school trip to me. They couldn't go to whatever they had to go to that day, and the teachers said, well, what are we going to do with them? The children would like swimming. It's hot weather. Let's take them to the Blue Lagoon. There seems to be be nothing wrong with that or out of the ordinary. Uh, A school trip while experiencing culture and marine biology is also a bit of a holiday for the children, isn't it? That's why they go. In the decision, they talk about the fact that there had been no risk assessment of the Blue Lagoon or related swimming activities before arriving at the lagoon. How realistic is that kind of language and that kind of um, expectation? Well, with respect, and perhaps this goes to the lower workers' compensation bodies, what are they supposed to do? They can't go to what they intended to go to. They say, well, we don't have a risk assessment for anything, so we keep the children in the motel or walk them in and out of the shops. I mean, let's, let's be real. I think you've got to look at a bit of reality, particularly with legislation, which is designed to be protective of people and to assist people who are injured. Playing devil's advocate... Would we be talking in a different way if a kid had been injured as opposed to a teacher? Would we all at that point be pointing the fingers at the teacher saying, why the hell did you allow this to happen? Well, we might be. It wouldn't be in workers' compensation. It would be in tort. No, no, of course. Yeah, and the question would be whether whether the teachers had done all that was, was appropriate. 
That's a little bit of a different issue because I suppose the children are brought there, that, that they don't make a decision to, to be brought there. It might be a little bit different, but I think you've got to be careful about using tort cases as analogies because here we have protective legislation. It's She's not suing in tort the school because she, she fell off. She's using protective legislation and we designed workers' compensation legislation 100 years ago because the tort system is such a lottery and we wanted to ensure that we protected people who earned their living to protect themselves and their families by allowing them to recover in a no-fault system. Leading expert in labour law, University of Sydney Emeritus Professor Ron McCallum. That's the Law Report. A big thank you to producer Anita Barrow and to sound engineer this week, Jules McKenzie. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.